Live from Northern California, it's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Ah, yes, indeedy, and he's here to say good afternoon to you. August 30th, it's a Tuesday. Great to have you on board for another edition of Lifeline. Craig Roberts keeping you company as we do Tuesday through Friday on this program, addressing issues that impact your life and your world. And we're going to do more of that today in a real big way. Before we meet our first guest this afternoon, though, a a brief uh, sidebar, if we might, since we'll begin be talking to a lawyer. They do a lot of sidebars in court, right? Um, The sidebar is essentially this. Um, Getting back after a week having been down for the count, fortunately not down and out, with a nice bout of COVID. And I, I just want to, if I might, friend to friend, you know, I've shared a lot of my life experiences with you on this program down through the years. We talked about my grandmother's passing, uh, my goodness, 20-something years ago, and then suddenly losing my father in 2015, my mother, uh, that was in January of 2015, my mother in August of 2015, and then the triple whammo being diagnosed with cancer. A month after my mass, my mother passed away. That was in uh, 2015, and so you know, I've always tried to be um, uh, transparent and share with you what I thought was appropriate to uh, maybe help you learn from some of my own personal life lessons and uh, give you a, a little bit of a sense of at least my my perspective on things. And so uh, today, I come to you to say uh, this whole COVID thing. Yeah, uh, it's nothing to play around with. And while I think most Americans kind of feel done with COVID, um, I will tell you from personal experience that COVID, by a long shot, is not done with us. And if you're somebody who has tried to, for whatever reason, because you can't get your nose out of Facebook or whatever, concluded that this is all political and you want nothing to do with being vaccinated, um, I'll tell you exactly what my doctor told me, not from a... Republican perspective, nor Democrat perspective, nor independent perspective. In fact, not a political perspective at all, but a medical perspective. And when you're dealing with health issues, that's probably a good place to start. My doctor said, Craig, inevitably, it's not a question of if, but a question of when all Americans are eventually exposed to COVID. The great delineator is those that have taken the time to be as cautious as possible, mask up where appropriate, and get vaccinated. I will tell you that when the first vaccination became available, I took it. I've taken every subsequent booster shot that was available. People say, oh, well, then it proves it doesn't work because you got it anyway. Stop. This particular infectious disease, much like the flu, in this case, it's a viable comparison, has the ability to morph in pretty quickly. And so, what the vaccination does do is make sure that for that particular strain, you are protected. And for the variants, that if you are exposed, that the degree to which you get ill, the length of time to which you get ill, how fast you're able to recover is very much dependent upon not only your overall general health, but also on the question of whether or not you have been vaccinated. So don't play Russian roulette with your life. If your life is important to you, if you have people to 
count on you, then do the smart thing and get the vaccination. And don't think just because you've had COVID that you're going to escape getting it again, because all it means is you'll have the antibodies to protect you from that particular strain. But COVID, COVID is a smart enemy and it's figured out how to morph. And so I just want to encourage you. I went through 29 months of taking the vaccination, masking up, six feet distance, avoiding people, not going into big crowds, et cetera, et cetera. And in the end, I was exposed to it anyway. But I'm grateful that I'm on the other side, feeling a lot better, not out of the woods yet, but well on my way. And so out of respect to you as the listener and hopefully a friend through the radio, uh, you will take my advice and be smart about this. This is not about politics. It's about health. It's about human life. Has there been mismanage of this? Oh, my goodness. This has been mismanaged top to bottom, start to finish. But that said, don't allow your political views to get in the way of ultimately what is smart for the sake of your own life and those that you love. That's all I'm going to say on the topic, at least for the moment. Let's get down to cases. COVID has done one thing. It's got a lot of us talking about our own mortality, matters of life and death, and whether or not we're ready. And of course, there are multiple layers of being ready from a health standpoint, from a spiritual standpoint, and certainly from an estate planning standpoint. It's interesting to note that a recent survey of Americans proved that fully of Americans across the country, over half of us think that having an estate plan is important, and yet only a third of Americans actually have one. Two-thirds agree with the statement that by the age of 55, Americans should have an estate plan of some sort in place, but less than half of those that think that actually do. Right now, according to more recent statistics, 55% of Americans die without a will or a plan in place. That means the government is going to decide what happens to your minor children, what happens to your estate, what happens to your life savings and the fruit of your labor of your time here on earth. So as much as we want to do the right thing with our health, we also want to do the right thing for planning what will be the inevitable, and that is that someday, at least Jesus, Terry, we will conclude our time here on earth. The question is, what happens to the property and the assets, your estate, once you're gone? Do you want to make the decisions, or do you want some judge that you've never met that's never met you making those decisions? Doing the smart thing means at least having a will in place. But the will, the will can pose multiple problems related to courts still being involved, attorneys still being involved, great delays, lots of expense. So what's the smart way to approach this matter? Well, we've invited Frank Parrish to join us today. Frank is an estate planning attorney with offices in Walnut Creek, San Francisco, Menlo Park, San Jose, and Santa Rosa. His practice is devoted specifically to this arena of estate planning to help people understand a very important principle, and that is they seek to provide the finest estate planning services at a reasonable and appropriate cost to clients to save you a lot of embarrassment and pain, and most importantly, to save that embarrassment and pain for your survivors. Frank, great to have you on the program. 
Craig, it's a sincere pleasure being with you again. This is a very important topic because, as I indicate, you know, and there's many things that are inevitable. Certainly, uh, taxes one, death being the other. And not being prepared for either can be very problematic, and especially so from the standpoint of people that say, well, I have ideas what I would like to do, but, you know, I'll get around to this someday. Oh, it sounds very involved, very complicated. It's a morbid topic. I really don't want to think about this. But if COVID has taught us anything, and that is that we're all vulnerable, we've been all reminded of our mortality, and being prepared in advance makes sure that the people that you love are going to be protected and cared for in the way that you so desire. But failure to do so really upsets the entire um, situation, doesn't it? It does entirely. And, you know, when you mentioned the experiences that you've had and that I've observed with clients and both my own personal experiences in my own private life and those of my clients, I can tell you very easily that those who have faith it is much easier to do estate planning with because they know that this is not all there is that we have around us. And so those with a faith, it makes it easier to plan, mainly because typically they have more of a stable family relationship. And our concepts of estate planning are based on traditional values of family and uh, all, all the Judeo-Christian heritage that we have been brought up with. Frank, we've got a lot to unpack today, but but I want to start with a very important fundamental question, and that is simply this, that there may be people eavesdropping on our conversation today that say, well, that's all well and good, and, and, and I get that, and yes, indeed, as people of faith, we should be more comfortable in, in dealing with this particular topic in a mature fashion. But Craig, Frank, I have to be honest with you. I don't really have an estate to speak of. I'm, I'm not a wealthy person. I don't have millions of dollars sitting in an account somewhere, or umpteen amounts of real estate. So why should I even concern myself with this? Very easily. If you have family, if you can look beyond yourself, there is an importance of having your affairs in order whether it be enlightened self-interest, but considering how it can help your family members, your children, your spouse, whomever. And the point that I come back to time and time again, doing estate planning is not related to intelligence. It is not related to education. I mean, I'll give you two very good examples, and I never have to make up any stories because in the Four decades of work, I've seen too many different situations. But years ago, I was a partner in a large law firm in San Francisco, and you may remember there was a shootout at 101 California Street, and a deranged man came up into this law firm on an elevator with two assault weapons. My partner was at that law firm that day, seated with his client, a 28-year-old mother. He was 38. He had two children. This man opened fire on that conference room. My law partner took two bullets in the back. His 28-year-old client took a bullet directly in her head. The assailant then ran through the law firm and shot another eight attorneys that day, and then he took his own life in a stairwell. 
that same day, those eight attorneys and that survive and that client, the 28-year-old mother, all who perished, they all died intestate. In other words, they all died without a will. And here you had eight attorneys who were all well-educated, who all knew the importance, and yet they felt, hey, I've got all the time in the world. I'm only 40. I'm only 38 years of age. So, you know, the point is, and I say this repeatedly, whether it is in an appointment or in front of an audience giving a speech, there is always a motivating factor, whether it is an illness of a family member, a death, as in your own family, whether you're planning a vacation, that there is always a motivating factor in put it, getting your affairs in order. And it is to your, it is enlightened self-interest, not only to yourself, but also to other family members. And, and I think I it's think also important for people to understand time, yeah. something critical here, Frank, and that is the notion that, um, you know, it, it not only do, don't you have to necessarily be a, a person with great degrees of education or not, but you also don't need to be somebody of great wealth. I mean, in the end of the day, if you have a little money in a bank account, if you have an automobile, if you have personal effects, private things, uh, maybe jewelry, things of that sort, that comprises your estate. Somebody will make a decision as to what happens to your items that you own, your property, once you're gone. The question is, do you want to make those decisions now while you're capable of doing so and enshrining them in a will or in a trust? And we'll talk about the difference in a moment. Or would you rather some judge that's never met you and that you've never met making those decisions for you? And and more complicated is if you are a young family and you have minor children, do you want just anybody to decide who cares for the kids, how they're cared for, how their needs are met, what happens to your life insurance policy? Or do you want some judge that's never met you making those decisions? One way or another, those decisions will be made, either by you or on your behalf. The question is, where do you feel more comfortable? Making the decision for yourself or letting some entire stranger do it? Frank Parrish is with us today. He is an estate planning attorney. We're talking about wills, trusts, and estates on today's program. And we're going to get back to more of our conversation when we come back. Some basic definitions. What is exactly a will or an estate plan? A living trust. We'll talk about that as our conversation with attorney Frank Parrish continues on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Estate planning attorney Frank Parrish is with us today. We're talking about all things related to, well, who's going to make the decision once you're not around to make the decision for yourself. How you will protect the interests of your spouse, your children, your loved ones to make sure that the final disposition of not only how your um, life is celebrated, but ultimately what happens to all the stuff that you've accumulated during life will be handled. And as I mentioned, that decision is going to be made one way or the other. The difference is, do you want to make that decision? Or would you like to have some judge in a black robe that you've never met make that decision for you? I think logically most of us would say, yeah, you know, that's really something I'd rather decide. I've got some pieces of jewelry that were handed down through the family by my grandfather. I I I have somebody in mind that I want to make sure 
receives those and will cherish those items. I, I don't want a judge making a decision like that. Or if if you're a couple, let's say the worst scenario happens and you pass away suddenly in a car accident. Uh, you know, you've got the one sister in the family that you know would really do a spectacular job raising your kids. But they didn't go to the court and ask for custody. No, it, it's the crazy uncle that did, the last person you want raising your children. But guess what? The judge might look at it and say, okay, fine, the kids go to them. And your wishes for your family, never known and therefore impossible to carry out. So today we're talking about how to make those decisions and what's involved in the process. And uh, Frank, maybe we can begin with a few basic definitions here. I, I, we've tossed around the term estate planning. We've talked about trusts and wills. But fundamentally, what exactly is the difference between a will versus a living trust? And what are the advantages of one over the other? Craig, very good answer. And it doesn't mean that one is exclusive of the other. The will is the most historic document. It goes back to the time of Rome. And a will is your ability to direct where you want your assets to go. The point is that with a will, just what is called a simple will, doesn't mean necessarily it is simple, but that's the legal term, meaning that you direct where all of your assets go, which you own alone in your own name. It doesn't govern joint tenancy. It's only assets in your own name. By comparison, if you set up a trust, and we would call it a revocable or revocable living trust, that doesn't mean that you should not have a will. You would have then what is called a pour-over will. The will directs a date of death, anything that I have not during my life retitled in the trust will, quote, pour over into it. However, the catch is, if it pours over into the trust, those assets go through probate. And most people in the state of California, whether married or single, or somewhere in between, do not care to have their assets going through probate. It's costly, it's time-consuming, and it clearly can be avoided if you do things properly. A trust, a separate document from your will, and there are three components to a trust. You have the creator, and that is called, historically is called the settlor or the grantor. And then you have the manager of the trust, and that is the trustee. And then you have the beneficiary, and that is the individual, whether it's husband, wife, single client, children, grandchildren, whomever, are the recipients of the benefits. And it is revocable, meaning you can change it during your lifetime. So you have the settlor, the trustee, and the beneficiary. And I always describe it sort of like the trinity, the three in one. You can be the creators of the trust, husband, wife. They are the co-trustees, and they are also the beneficiaries. And at the date of death of the first spouse, the unique thing with a trust, it transcends death. For example, the will only becomes effective at death. The trust, you establish it during your lifetime. The key is, not only do you establish it during your lifetime, but you also then retitle, which is a critical, critical point. You retitle assets into the trust. So at date of death, <clears throat> say it is husband, wife, husband predeceases wife, the trust continues on for the lifetime of the wife, 
at the date of death of the surviving spouse, it may continue on for the benefit of children, for grandchildren. It cannot continue forever. The only type of trust allowed to continue, quote, in perpetuity, is a charitable trust. So when you watch PBS, and it will say, brought to you by the Arthur Vining Foundation or the Catherine MacArthur Foundation or the Carnegie Foundation, those type of trusts can continue in perpetuity. But a revocable living trust for individuals can only exist during your lifetime, typically during your children's lifetime and grandchildren's lifetime. Doesn't mean it has to, but it gives you that option. And my role as an attorney, I always say, is not to tell people what to do, but to alert them to what planning options they have, and from that, being able to make an informed decision. Because many clients will initially say, well, you know, I just, I just want a simple will. I'm a simple person. I don't have much. But when you go into and you inquire, and the point is asking questions, when you ask, okay, you want to leave it to your son and daughter equally. Yes, that is correct. Well, what if your son is deceased? What if your son predeceases you? Then where do you want his inheritance to go? He said, gee, well, I've never given any thought to that. Well, no, you need to give thought to that. Do you want it to go to your grandchildren, his children? Well, yes, I would. But then, if they're minors, do you want it to go to them outright, which would mean you'd have a court-appointed guardian? Or instead, do you want it retained in a grandchildren's trust? Oh, yeah, I think that would be a great idea. Okay, then who would be the trustee? Gee, I've never given any thought to that. And in addition, at what ages would you want the funds distributed to them? If you're leaving $500,000 to two grandchildren, do you want everything distributed at 21? Or do you want a third at 25, half at 30, the balance of 35? And they'll say, gee, I never thought of this. What do other people do? And my answer other people ask the same question. And, you know, what's so important about this, Frank, is the notion that this is so nuanced in the sense, as you just pointed out, that we have to think about all of the potential contingencies. It's one thing to say as you're sitting down and, and executing that document, yeah, when I pass away, um, my spouse and I, we want our estate to be divided equally amongst our two children. Beautiful. Easy. But what if you pass away and they're still minors? Or it might be one thing to say, okay, they're, they're of age, they're over the age of 18, but... Have you ever thought about what an 18-year-old does if they come into a ton of money? So let's say unexpectedly you and your spouse pass away, and now your 18-year-old son is sitting on, using your example, half of 500000 250 goes to the son, 250 goes to the daughter. The son's not thinking about education, buying a home someday. No, what the son is thinking about is the Maserati, the Corvair. No, I guess they're not a Corvair. Probably a Corvette. <laughs> and, and suddenly, that legacy that you've taken a lifetime to build and carefully set aside and protect disappears overnight because you didn't think about the potential nuances here. And then further complicating this, as you point out, what if the person to whom you intend to leave your estate has predeceased you? Or what about how to select who the successor trustee is going to be, who the executor will be? 
Is it just anybody? Do you need to have a person that has the time, the knowledge, the the experience, or at least the the patience to deal with the trust? They can often be very lengthy, very involved, particularly if there's a fair amount of assets that need to be dealt with. All of these questions need to be answered and committed into writing so that as many reasonable contingency plans, so to speak, many of the nuances have been addressed so that 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 living document that you leave behind that that supersedes you in life will be certain to accomplish that and give consideration to some of these potential changes, the twists and turns that maybe you don't foresee happening today, but could potentially at the point of your passing. Estate planning attorney Frank Parrish is with us today. We're talking about estate planning, what it is, why it's important, and who it's for. When we come back, we're going to talk about more aspects of creating a revocable trust, what it means to be a revocable versus irrevocable trust. And once you've established that document, is your job over? (laughs) Some might actually say that, no, the work has just begun. But what does that look like? More insights from estate planning attorney Frank Parrish here on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back with estate planning attorney Frank Parrish. By the way, if you want to get a hold of Frank, undoubtedly you've got some questions of your own. You want to get some insights, maybe have a sit-down appointment, a couple of easy ways to get a hold of him. Uh, You can reach him on the web at parrish.com. EstateLaw.com. That's P A R R I S H. Parish EstateLaw.com. Or call them at area code 925 588 That's 925 Frank's got offices throughout the entire Bay Area, so undoubtedly one close to you Walnut Creek, San Francisco, Menlo Park, San Jose, and Santa Rosa. All right, we've talked about a few definitions this afternoon, Counselor, but I want to kind of dig down into some details. So once a person sits down, hopefully with an expert like yourself that gets a chance to take a look at their estate, give some serious thought to the final disposition of where they want um, the goods, the items, the wealth that they've accumulated throughout their life to go, have thought through all of the complicated nuances that we touched on a moment ago. There are some other important things that need to be done. And I guess one of the big failures oftentimes is folks think that once they've created the document, they put it back in the safe or, you know, under the bed or wherever their their hiding place is and figure, that okay, that's it. My job is done. But in fact, some of the most important aspects of estate planning, once the living will has been created, are only just beginning. You're exactly right, Greg. And what I have found, one thing very clearly, the vast majority of individuals in the United States today have no estate plans. And the added consideration is the majority of people who do have estate plans, most are out of date. Because just as you say, one, most clients don't care to address the issue. Most individuals don't desire to address the issue once it has been addressed they put it rather put it away and not think about it again and that in many ways is a fatal mistake because changes in their personal life as well as changes in the tax law can cause great problems in an estate plan 
give you an example. The tax law in the year 2005 exempted an estate from estate taxation of $1 million. And so for a married couple, you could double that to $2 million. So if a client has, or a married couple has had more than $2 million at that time, they would have set up a trust, which is the death of the first spouse, would divide into several different revocable and irrevocable trusts. And that made sense in 2005. Well, now let's leap forward to 2022. The exemption, rather than being $1 million, is now $12,060,000 for an individual. That is for an, an unmarried individual. You double that to $24,120,000 for a married couple. Well, I always say, you know, for a single client, if you have more than $12 million, that's a nice problem to have. Not many individuals have that. But my point is, a married couple who set up their trust in 2005 put it away, never thought about it, and now one spouse dies in 2022, causing that trust to divide into several irrevocable arrangements, and those arrangements are no longer needed. It's just because the document is out of date. And so it's critically important to review your estate plan, both from a tax perspective as well as based upon personal need. I will tell you very simply what I have found out through my entire career is that the most difficult decisions, bar none, the most difficult are personal in nature and not tax related. It's an easy home run to say, hey, if your estate doesn't exceed 12 million, you don't need to worry about complicated planning. Yes, it makes sense to have a revocable trust. Yes, it can avoid probate. Yes, you can keep your affairs private. Yes, you can help assist your children in asset management in the event of your passing. But you don't have to have a series of irrevocable trusts going into effect. But failure to update documents is just a major, major mistake. And it's hard to motivate individuals to review the documents that they've had prepared. And, you know, the other important thing, too, is some folks have to realize that when, when you create a trust, it's, it's almost like a container, isn't it, in, in a sense that now I'm going to take an asset. It could be a bank account. It could be a piece of real estate. And it's going to be held in trust. And so in order for it to be in that container, you need to change the titling. And, and Frank, isn't it a big mistake that a lot of folks think, well, I met with the lawyer, we signed the papers, it's all good, we've put the copy of our trust in a secure place, our executor knows where to locate it, our job is done, failing to recognize that until you have retitled the assets in the name of the trust, all of that all of a sudden is outside of that container and then potentially, potentially subject to probate, isn't it? And if so, walk listeners through briefly about what probate is and why we'd like to avoid it. You're exactly right. Any assets not titled or retitled in the name of the trust, if it remains in your name alone, at date of death, will end up going through probate. Probate, the definition is the transfer of assets 
at date of death, which you own in your own name alone, and it's distributed in accordance with the in, uh, the estate laws of of each particular jurisdiction. For example, if you live in California, probate at the same time does not control assets titled in joint tenancy, which automatically pass to a surviving joint tenant. So a client who sets up a revocable living trust and fails to transfer assets into it, they defeated the whole purpose. I was dealing with a daughter, if you can believe this. She came in and said, my mother, you know, I just can't believe it. She died unexpectedly. And I said, oh, you know, the passing of a, a parent is always traumatic. I, I've lost both of my parents as well. I said, do you happen to have a copy of her death certificate? Yes. She gave that to me. I looked at it. The mother had a revocable living trust. She owned eight different properties. I retrieved the grant deeds for all eight properties. None of them were titled in the trust. Oh, boy. If you can believe it, the mother died unexpectedly. She was 108. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you, you, Didn't see that one coming, huh? <laughs> yeah, and you don't, you know, it's not like you're making light of, of any loss of life. But, I mean, here was someone, 108 years of age, had a beautifully drafted trust, and it wasn't, and it is not worth the paper on which it's written. I now am in the process of having to go through this process of trying to, there are ways of avoiding probate of those assets, but it's time-consuming, and it would have been so much easier had they met with me initially to have the assets retitled in the trust and to retitle for example real estate does not trigger a reassessment so there's no property tax reassessment by putting it into a trust and if you have things titled properly under our current law date of death you get a 100 percent step up in income tax cost basis that's a tax issue it's an income tax issue, but for example, suppose you bought a property at fifty thousand and a date of death is worth a million five hundred thousand and you die. The cost basis now in the estate and for your heirs, everything is appraised, fair market value, the new cost basis is a million five. So the surviving spouse, for example, or if it passes to children, could sell the property for that new fair market value and realize zero income tax. I mean, there's no comparison. So you have to look at there is the estate tax issue, which doesn't affect, affects very few people today. There is the estate tax issue. There is the property tax issue. There is probate. And then you have the income tax issue. And the income tax issue becomes more of a critical point than anything else. And I share this with clients all the time. I met with an elderly client last week who said, I want to gift this property to my grandson. Can I do this? And I said, what is the value of it? It's worth about 500000 And what did you buy it for? 50000 I said, sure, you can gift it to your grandson if you want to. But listen, just let me make you aware of the consequence. 
One, in gifting it now, you have to file a gift tax return. Doesn't mean that there'll be a gift tax owing because there's an ex- an exemption from gift tax of $12,060,000 just as a state tax. So there's really not a gift tax issue. You have to file the return, but you're not going to owe any tax. And the gift to the grandson isn't taxable. I mean, from the standpoint, he's not going to, he's not going to be treated as he received any income from it. However, so the grandchild receives the gift during lifetime. The grandmother is required to file the gift tax return. Okay, so she's made a gift worth 500000 That's the fair market value. But the grandson inherits her cost basis of 50000 So if he turns around and sells it, he has to recognize gain on 450000 By comparison, if the grandmother would have left it in her trust, saying, at my date of death, I leave it to my grandson, and she dies, and the property is worth 500000 his new cost basis is 500000 He could sell it and realize no income tax consequence. I mean, there, and, and that doesn't mean the gifting during lifetime is wrong. It simply means to be aware of what is the consequence, what is the price of your decision. And I go through that day in and day out. And again, you know, we're, we're back to that word I used earlier, Frank, of nuances. Uh, people, if they do it in the appropriate fashion and get some expert advice can avoid not only a lot of hassle, in the case of estate planning, having a living will in place, making sure that all the assets have been titled in the name of the trust, to avoid probate can save you a lot of time. There are mandatory court fees, there are mandatory attorney fees when you go through probate. Much of all of that gets to be avoided when you have a living trust. Moreover, uh, a probate is always a very public issue. That means the will is on file. Anybody can walk down to the courthouse and know exactly how much you gave and, and when versus it being very private when it's handled through a revocable trust. Moreover, in the example you just cited, Frank, some people have to recognize that just proper planning in advance could save, in, in your example, the grandson between being able to essentially inherit grandmother's um, uh, value for property tax purposes rather than having the step up in basis where all of a sudden now you go from an annual property tax rate of maybe $1,500, maybe less than that on a piece of property worth uh, valued at $50,000 under Prop 13 to now six dollars $7,000 a year in property taxes, all because of the failure to plan properly. State planning attorney Frank Parrish is with us today. We've got a few more minutes to spend with Frank, so let's take a brief time out. By the way, if you'd like to get a hold of Frank, you've got some questions of your own. Let me encourage you to give him a call at 925-588-0300. That's 925-588-0300. Or find him online at parrishestatelaw.com. That's parrishestatelaw.com. Back with more as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, back with some closing thoughts in this segment of Lifeline with estate planning attorney Frank Parrish. Information online at parrishestatelaw.com. Frank, as we've learned today, there are a number of steps here and a number of mistakes that can be made. First and foremost is just simply failing to plan at all or 
poor planning or planning but failing to fund or title the assets once the estate plan has been put in place. I guess some of the other big errors are forgetting about it. In other words, thinking, okay, that that part of life has been taken care of. We can check that off the list. And then 10 years, 20 years go by, laws change, circumstances change, people in the family come and go. All of a sudden, the daughter-in-law that you were absolutely enthralled with is no longer a part of the family. But guess what? In your estate that you put together 10 years ago, she's happily listed. And all of a sudden, you find out, guess what? You've passed away, and a big chunk of your estate is going to somebody that you don't want to receive assets from. Or I suppose another one, and undoubtedly you run into this all the time, people that title things like a 401k or an IRA or life insurance um, in the name of someone, and then suddenly they're out of the picture, but you've never updated that information, and suddenly you find out that there's a half-million-dollar life insurance policy going to the (laughs) ex-wife. And I have had that happen with clients. I mean, you have to take into account where you mentioned probate, the the assets that that are that end up going through probate that are just in your name alone. But there are also considering non-probate assets, and those can be joint tenancy, which in many cases is not a way of avoiding probate because of the death of a surviving joint tenant if the survivor hasn't done anything it will go through probate as well so it's a misnomer the other is for example an IRA or life insurance you have a beneficiary on it those are non-probate assets life insurance can be made payable to your revocable trust but an IRA or a 401k plan you can never retitle it into a trust. You could name the trust as a beneficiary, but that doesn't necessarily have the ideal tax, ultimate income tax benefit. I mean, an IRA or a 401k plan, they are designed for one purpose, or they are primarily designed for one purpose, and that is retirement. They are not designed for inheritance, because when you inherit an IRA, the inheritance will be treated just as it was for the participant. It will all be ordinary taxable income to you. So if the choice is, and I know you shouldn't, the old adage, look a gift horse in the mouth, but if it's the choice of inheriting an IRA worth 500000 or being named as in a trust to inherit a specific brokerage account worth 500000 you would always be better off by inheriting the brokerage account because it gets a step up in cost basis. So you inherit 500000 in a brokerage account. There is no income tax consequence versus you inherit the IRA. A third of it, at a minimum, will go to the federal government in income taxation. So it is, you know, then, then that's tinkering with the estate plan. When you work with individuals who say, they're inclined to do charitable giving. In many cases, single clients, because they don't have children, grandchildren, whomever. So I, they'll say, well, we'd like to give so much to charity. Well, suppose that particular individual has a $500,000 IRA and 500000 in other assets. I'll tell them repeatedly, look, if you consider using the beneficiary designations on IRAs to go to charity, 
Number one, you'll get a charitable deduction at date of death, and the distribution out of the IRA is exempted from income taxation. So again, there's just these, what you describe as nuances and variations on a theme, and that's why we spend in an initial conference, which is offered as a courtesy without any charge, usually some two hours of time, I give people a questionnaire and a financial statement in advance. We take the time to go through, because it's overwhelming, all these different variations. And I tell clients repeatedly, you know, if I waited for a client to complete a questionnaire, I'd never have any appointments. Many people complete it on the way to the office. But the point is, the point is it causes individuals to begin to think about issues that they've never previously given any thought to. You know, and that's so important because at the end of the day, listen, I know that there's a degree to which this feels uncomfortable. It feels just something we'd rather avoid. Nobody likes to think about their eventual demise. But we have to be an adult. We have to recognize the importance of protecting our lifelong work, our financial legacy, protecting those that we care about. And, you know, even in our conversation today, as much as we've talked through a lot of the options and the, the, the pitfalls and failures, we've not even unpacked issues like special needs trusts. What if you have a child that has a special need and want to make sure that they're looked after, but you can't just give them the money outright? What about matters of that sort? We're going to have to get Frank back on to, to go into depth in more of this because it is a very important topic. And as I mentioned at the onset of the program tonight, statistically right Right now, there's only about 45% of Americans um, who have some sort of an estate plan or will in place at the moment of death. That means fully 55% of us have none in place whatsoever and seem to be either through avoidance or ignorance content with the notion of letting a judge decide what happens to your earthly possessions and the ultimate disposition of your assets. Would you like that or would you rather be in charge? Yeah, I, I, I bet I can guess the answer. If you want to get more information, Frank mentioned about a complimentary consultation and you can visit with him in any of his Bay Area offices between Walnut Creek, San Francisco, Menlo Park, San Jose, and Santa Rosa. Give him a call. Nice guys, you've heard. 925-588-0300. That's 925-588-0300. Or online at Parish Estate Law, P-A-R-R-I-S-H, parishestatelaw.com. Our thanks to trust attorney Frank Parrish for being with us on that segment of Lifeline.